Your Most Avid Reader by Bibi Berkey. The Women in the Woods, Chapter 11 The Reverend Emily Harrington's front parlour was as bare as her unadorned church. She wasn't interested in earthly possessions, and when her husband died she divested herself of his few treasures, namely some hand-turned mahogany furniture and a pair of creamy white Sevres urns, which had stood upon the mantelpiece and given him great pleasure. The mahogany chairs had been sold to raise funds for the church, and the urns were packed into a chest in the attic space above the maid's room. The primrose walls were whitewashed, and an oak table and two chairs was brought in to serve the widow in all her needs, from eating to writing. It filled Mrs Harrington with joy to see the sunlight lavish itself across the silk surface of her refractory table. Everything was plain and open and honest and true. There was nothing to hide. The Harrington House was a small affair, but smart and situated just off the high street in the market town of Louth. Its black front door opened directly onto the pavement, and callers often found themselves dodging the human traffic as they waited for admittance. Mrs Harrington liked to answer the door herself, often calling to Sarah the maid to stand down and leave it to her. It was a day of gauzy brightness and subdued warmth in the middle of September, when the bell by the front door clanged, and Emily Harrington was disturbed in the middle of writing her latest pamphlet. She wiped the nib of her quill on a piece of calico and stood up from her chair. Sarah was out. The Reverend waited a dignified stretch of twenty seconds and then entered the little passageway which led to the front door. Nicholas Rouse stood on her step and didn't wait to ask for admittance. She was used to his abruptness and smiled as he pushed past her. The young man made his way to her parlour and slumped at her table. They should be hanged for what they've done, he muttered. They will be hanged, by God. Nicholas, said the Reverend, and seated herself opposite him, reaching across the table to calm his jittery hands. What ails thee? The she-wolves, they ail me. Ah, she said, adopting the tone of an indulgent mother. The Hesiot women, you can't let them be, can you? Don't feign compassion, he spat. You hate them as much as I do. The labourers were slung out of their cottages for these whores. But now their old homes lay empty while the women busy themselves building new ones. It's a mockery of justice. The displaced people were worked half to death on that estate, but at least they had decent homes. Now they're without roofs as the winter draws close. And why? Because it took the fancy of some heartless bitch of a squire's wife to replace her workforce with these foreign imbeciles. But that's not all, is it? smiled Mrs Harrington. You mean the rumours, the infanticides? This is what we'll do for them in the end, I'm afraid, she said, shaking her head pityingly. 
How is it that they're without boy children? Natural causes or unnatural behaviour? No community can live with that question in its midst. Dow's flung up a hand in violent exacerbation. But only Hadley himself can convene a court hearing, and he won't. He would never dirty his hands with such a low subject. It would implicate him any case, the women being his labourers now. The Reverend pushed back her chair and considered him a moment. Men are the slaves of their tempers, she mused. Such a shame that they cannot control themselves or use their strength more effectively. They wish only to destroy. Rouse's true talent, she had long realised, was not pedagogy but in the whipping up of a crowd. Why can't you let the woman be, she said. She is with child. At this he clenched his fist. The child is yours. The child might be mine, he admitted. It might be the child of half a dozen men of Lincolnshire for all I know. But it's not about an unborn child. It's about the ones who have surely disappeared. Dozens for all we know. Harrington flinched. She didn't believe for a moment that the Hesiod women could kill their own male children. The two infants' deaths reported since their arrival were almost certainly a matter of cruel chance. They were her followers once, and she had put her energy and belief into them. But they had humiliated her by showing not the slightest commitment to the church. And they had run shamelessly to another benefactor as soon as the opportunity was available. For that, she would not defend them. And so she had to agree with Rouse when he referred to them as she-wolves. But that didn't mean she would condone his shapeless anger. What would such an outburst achieve? You're right, Nicholas. The law won't touch them. No one would speak up for the infants. The people round here are too absorbed in their own tragedy of poverty. She wanted him to leave now. He disturbed her equanimity. She stood and came beside him, placing a hand on his trembling shoulder. The landowners do not wish to sully their hands with this unseemly business, she explained. It is beneath them. The men who could so easily uphold the law are busying themselves with curing wealth. The rights and wrongs of the pursuit of wealth is something that you feel more strongly about. I have no interest in such worldly matters. But let me tell you this. When the people are wronged, they will take matters into their own hands, and there is nothing that a squire can do about it. It is the people who will decide if they can endure this injustice any longer. They will take on the role of the judge. And in this evocative way, the Reverend Emily Harrington placed a germ in the young Nicholas Douse's mind that would seal the fate of the hapless Hesiod women, who had dared or been so foolish as to wash up on these shores in such tumultuous times. As it happened, I didn't go to see him in his house that very night. I slept on it. Sleeping on things is a nonsense for me, as I rarely change my mind, but I told myself I ought at least to try. I got up the next morning as determined as the night before. There was actually some degree of cold practicality about leaving matters for another day. The following day was a Saturday, 
and I was due to go to a Waterstones in Islington to give a reading. I would simply go and seek out my lover's wife first, explain all, and depart for my appointment at six. If they weren't home, well then, that would be that. I would sleep on it one more night. Leaving things for a day, two days, even a week, wouldn't make the slightest difference. I got on the train and felt elated. I'd been conscious of a pounding in my head for the past few days, but it didn't bother me as such. It was like those pace-setting drums, keeping Roman slaves rowing in time. Did those drummers really exist, I wonder? You of all people would know. Just bang-bang, bang-bang, day and night. Looking back, I can see there was some kind of malady, something to do with stress and blood pressure. For me, at the time, it was the rightful accompaniment to the madness of my want. It would end, I thought, when my desires were met. Trains are peaceful, I find, don't you? That womb feeling, being propelled along while inside a safe, warm interior, the sound of blood rushing past. I love trains. It was on this train that he had so willingly hooked himself into me, knowing full well that we could never be untangled. I could have ridden that train forever, with the feeling of him so strong, the image so clear. But of course I did get off, and I made my way to Wandsworth, and within half an hour I was standing on the corner of his street. It was rather pretty, hedgy, decked out with good taste. Decent curtains, original windows, iron railings, planters on either side of front doors. A lot of fancy foliage, sleek evergreens. Nothing as blousy or lower middle as bedding plants for these people. His house was pretty much in the middle of the street, and as I approached it, I could see another woman coming towards me from the other end. She wore a white dress and flat leather sandals. She was rather broad, and the voluminous skirt of the dress only exaggerated her hips. Suddenly, from behind her, skipped two children, both girls. I hadn't seen them until then. All three swung into the path that led to his house. I stopped. Was this her? The wife? Were these the children? I think it only occurred to me then that I would be at a disadvantage, that I wouldn't actually know who was who. I would have to ascertain facts first, and that felt rather demeaning. In short, I'd arrived with no strategy other than the demolition of a marriage. From the house, I heard the doorbell ring, and then a female voice declare, Hello! Hello! Come in, all of you! I stayed where I was, some six doors down. Then from behind me I heard footsteps. I didn't turn around, stayed facing front. The drumming in my head grew louder, but I could still make out other sounds. The feet belonged to a single person, and they didn't slow or hesitate when they reached me, simply avoided me, made a detour, passed me by. I saw the back of a young woman, slim, in combat trousers and a strappy top. I remember she had one of those Celtic symbols tattooed on her arm. She too turned into the path leading to his house. I realised by now that there was some kind of social event going on at his place. I let myself move towards it. I was being urged on. I turned into his front path and found myself before a yellow front door. 
I reached for the bell and waited. Behind it, I heard children screaming happily and people laughing. The blood in my head pounded out its course. I put my hands up to my temples to contain it, in case the noise just spilled out and swept everyone away. The door swung open, and a woman in a loose peasant blouse and jeans stood before me, and frowned a little as she tried to place me. Hello? she asked. I nodded a greeting in return, removed my hands from the sides of my head. I listened to the rhythm bouncing between my ears. I must have seemed deranged. Are you Scott's friend? she asked, and then answered for me. You must be Eleanor, is that right? I nodded and smiled. Oh, how good to meet you at last. I told him to invite more people from work. Thanks so much for coming all the way out here. Was it a long journey? Not bad, I said, and made my way in, quite at ease with myself. I was a guest, and had been given an identity. Note that I hadn't intended to dissemble. It was thrown at me. We walked along a hallway, narrowed by a cluttered inside lane of pushchairs, bikes and scooters. Excuse the mess, she said. And I did. These things come with the territory, I suppose. What can one do? Her hair was blonde and thin, and limply restrained in an untidy ponytail. Her neck, however, was long and very beautiful, with honey-brown skin suggesting her age, to me to be in the early thirties, maybe younger. A little girl ran into her path and she caught the child's head before it collided with her groin. The girl asked her mummy for some jelly. We made it into the kitchen, a room of phenomenal mess and disarray, children's pictures lavished on every surface, unwashed crockery in the basin, bottles of wine, beer and lemonade crowding the surface of a fashionably ugly 1950s lino-topped table. A drink? she asked. Just some wine for me, I said graciously, as though something better would have been the order of the day, but too much to hope for. Please help yourself, she said. Scott'll be home in a minute. He's gone to get more crisps and stuff, cos we're already out. I wanted to make another jelly too, but I, I doubt I'll get round to it. He's just in the corner shop. There are more grown-up nibbles outside. Do you want to go outside? Not sure if there's anyone you'll know. We're expecting Gary later. Thanks, I said, tilting a drop of white wine into a plastic cup. Great. I stepped through the French windows into a garden of quite some proportions. Classic London stuff, long and overgrown. But there was something... You know, something about its rattling tranquillity, about its poverty of beauty, that set in motion a tearing nostalgia for me. For the family home, for the chaos of living among those one loves, for the dusty, dirty busyness of a home with children, a home where children bring other children to play, and where parents come and go with ease and familiarity. Living in a street, why would anyone choose anything different? This is how humanity was supposed to conduct itself. Eleanor, she called. I turned at once, because I already knew myself by that name. Eleanor, do you know Martin? No, I said. Afraid not, sorry. And I went to the bottom of the garden and sat beneath a tree. I have no idea what kind and watched the children run about and the adults stand and laugh at their mundane idiocies, 
and was comfortable in the early afternoon sun. When a girl of about seven came with a plate of sausage rolls and offered me one, I took it with grace and gratitude, as I hoped Eleanor might, and paid her with a sanguine smile. What a great game! What a mad old cow I was! How soppy! How off my rocker! So what? None of it was all that wrong. I would go soon, seek out the hostess, and have a word with her. I'd tell her that her home was delightful, her life charmed, her neck quite, quite beautiful, and her husband mine. And suddenly there he was, arriving in the kitchen, with two orange Sainsbury's bags dangling from his hands, his expression mobile, exasperated one moment, welcoming and benign the next. He stood at the open window, and she stood beside him. I saw his mouth form the question, Eleanor. She pointed me out, all the way down here at the foot of the garden. He squinted to make me out, and then froze, and remained staring at me, possibly in a rage I couldn't tell. I didn't care. It was his party. He could do as he liked. I gave him a carefree little wave, and he turned his back on me, returning at once to the kitchen. His wife remained a moment longer on the patio, her expression somewhere between puzzlement and weariness. I guessed that there was a profounder reason for that weariness than merely being the slave parent of children. It was nothing to do with her, everything to do with her relationship with him. She turned and went indoors, and that was all I saw of either of them for the time being. Someone did come and converse with me, a middle-aged, bearded boar of a bachelor who lived nearby, and who must have thought I'd been placed under that tree especially for him. He gave up in the face of my charming sang-froid after a laboured quarter of an hour. At around four o'clock, conscious that I had a book signing to attend in town, I got up, brushed myself down, and with an undrunk cup of wine in my hands, made my way up the garden. I nodded greetings to the three mothers and assorted children sitting on a blanket on the lawn. They were babbling at a phenomenal rate, were clearly not in the least intrigued by me. They must have been told, Oh, that's Eleanor, Scott's colleague. She only talks shop. Avoid her. I do hope they were. As I stepped across the toys and plates on the sunny patio, I had to focus to make out who was in the shade of the kitchen. And for the first time that day, I was dealt a blow. I'd come intending to deal all the blows myself, swiftly but humanely, to get things wound up at last, and to stop the suffering and the pretense. But the first injury was dealt to me. Through those open French windows, I saw husband and wife alone in the kitchen together. You think I'm going to say they were kissing, or embracing, or laughing together, or even arguing, but it was none of those things. No, they weren't even looking at each other, let alone speaking. I just saw them standing together, shoulder to shoulder, their backs to me, bent over the kitchen table, making sandwiches. He was buttering the bread, and she was placing something or other on each slice. They worked silently. There were no verbal signs of affection between them. But for some reason... Seeing their shoulders touching, their backs bent with shared labour, my heart broke. 
I swear that is exactly when the pounding in my brain ended. Just stopped, and my resolve shriveled. What did it matter whether they loved each other, or whether the sex with me was better? They were married. They were married in a way different to my experience of marriage. There was a practical and solidifying aspect to some marriages, I guessed. Call it routine or dull familiarity, but it was nonetheless a way of life. You are held in the python embrace of that institution, even if that's the only embrace going. They straightened up as one. She gave him the plate of sandwiches, and he turned to face the garden and at once saw me. I smiled, but he showed nothing, not a jot of friendliness or even recognition. He walked out of the kitchen and stepped onto the patio and, without changing his pace, walked past me and down the garden. I swivelled and saw him lay the sandwiches on the blanket with the mothers and their children and settle himself among them, consumed by the storm of conversation and laughter. I marvelled at the hateful peace in my head. It signified failure. And then she called, twice, my name. Eleanor. Do you want another drink, Eleanor? She asked, leaning out from the kitchen. I said, what? And I must have seemed pale or dizzy, because she came out and asked, with the kind of concern that interfering people find it hard to mask, Are you all right? I'm fine, I said, and I heard my voice as a wisp, a dry and brittle little cracked sound, old and forgotten. Come and sit down, she suggested. We were at the kitchen table. The remnants of the sandwich making, the crumbs, dropped butter, half-torn pieces of ham, lay like the detritus of a battle scene between us. She sat at the other end of the table, not beside me. She was in opposition, I knew that much. She was a fool, though, to try and have it out with me. I would lie till the end. You're having a busy time of it at the moment, Scott says, what with the new legislation. Was she testing me? I actually think not. I think she wanted me to be Eleanor. Her gold-hued skin was the shiny, rather perfect kind that you know won't stay that way much longer. She dropped her face into her hands and rubbed her eyes and sighed with fatigue. I don't really understand that kind of tiredness, the type that comes from drudgery. I looked at the crown of her head and wondered whether I had been good to women in my life so far, whether it mattered one way or another. It took me back, funnily enough, to the days when I railed against the female company that my first husband kept, his coterie of obliging and giggling colleagues, who weren't his equals exactly, but his possessions. Did I still have it in for that type of girl, I wondered, the ones that flit around a charismatic male? Did this tired and clueless wife once have to giggle her way to married security? That kind of business was beneath me, but I shouldn't resent those for whom it was a valid strategy. She raised her head and settled her eyes on me, timidly, but with some admirable gumption. If you're sleeping with him, I don't care. It came out all quivering and barely convincing. Of course she cared. Every sinew in her body told her, and me, that she cared. 
She kept her gaze on me, and I think maybe she thought I'd wither. But I pitied her for the first time, because it's such a bore to have to make yourself out to be more carefree than you actually are. That must be the lot of the philanderer's wife. I waited a moment and met her gaze and wondered if I might hurt her. I was in total control. I was about to snap that pretty little neck in two with grief. I put the plastic cup that I'd been holding all afternoon to my lips, and without turning my eyes away from her, I emptied it to its last sharp drop. I haven't slept with him, I said, and I got up. I didn't say anything more, but I saw, even though I wasn't meant to, the collapse of her tensed muscles. She'd heard what she wanted. She must have been so wound up, poor girl, so taut, so utterly petrified of my response, that to hear my words was to bathe in relief. Good for her. I left the house, and I walked down the street, and the evening sun was bright and reflected off the glossy laurel leaves in the front gardens. My head resounded with a massive emptiness. Any lingering youth or frivolity finally left me, and I got the picture at last. There was nothing to hope for, nothing to fight over. I went and signed some books for my lavishly grateful readers. Monica by Georgina Sutton. The male narrator was Mark Lingwood. Your Most Avid Reader was written by Bibi Berkey, with sound editing by Mark Lingwood. It was made by Tempest Productions and brought to you with the kind support of Rattlesnake Books, an established seller of books, maps, ephemera, art and curiosities. Rattlesnake Books can be found on Instagram, Etsy, Abe Books and Biblio. <laughs>